We'll hear argument next in number 927549, Thomas Shiro versus Robert Farley. Foster, you may proceed. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Thomas Shiro was acquitted of mens rea murder at the guilt trial. The case then proceeded to the penalty trial where the jury unanimously recommended against the death penalty in 61 minutes. You, you refer to it as, as, as a, the guilt trial and the penalty. Uh, I, it's more generally spoken of as the guilt phase and the penalty phase. Uh, is there any difference for our purposes between those, those two terms? No, Your Honor, I don't think it makes any difference. Now, I, I, you began by saying that he was acquitted. Isn't that one of the issues here? Yes, Justice Kennedy, and I'm getting to that. Are you, All right. Um, the judge overrode the penalty recommendation, but more importantly in our case, the guilt trial verdict and imposed the death penalty, finding that Shiro had committed mens rea murder during the course of a rape. We know that Shiro was acquitted of mens rea murder for four reasons. Those reasons depend largely upon the uh, three separate charges filed in this case and the verdict forms that the jury had received. The state separately charged three counts of murder for the death of a single person, as is common in Indiana. Count one, mens rea murder, charged that Shiro knowingly killed the victim. Charges two and three each charged separate counts of felony murder. Those counts did not require that the state demonstrate any mens rea as to the killing, but did require that the state demonstrate an underlying felony, rape, and criminal deviant conduct, respectively. And presumably mens rea in connection with that felony, didn't it? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice, that's correct. Um, now, Ms. Foster, I thought the jury was instructed in Instruction 8 that regardless of the form of verdict, that in any case, the jury had to find that the defendant engaged in the conduct which caused the death and that when the defendant did so, he knew the conduct would or intended it to cause the death. I thought that was the instruction given Just on others. Justice O'Connor, that instruction goes to count one only. It does not apply. It is not so limited. Was, was instruction eight given to the jury or not? Yes, absolutely. It yes. was. And uh, uh, it appeared to be understood by counsel for both the state and the defendant that intent was required to be found in any of the forms of verdict and that it was, in fact, so found. That but was the arguments, the arguments made to the jury by both counsel indicated that understanding. And it would certainly be consistent with instruction eight as I read it. No, Your Honor, I would um, respectfully disagree with that. Final instruction number four uh, told the jury what the separate elements for mens rea murder were and what the elements for uh, felony murder were. Final instruction eight um, clearly cannot cannot apply to the felony murder count because the jury was instructed in final four that in order to sustain a conviction for felony murder, uh, the jury had to find an underlying felony, and yet Final Instruction 8, we see nothing in there that requires uh, the jury to find the underlying felony. Additionally, Final Instruction 8 goes on to say, if you find from your consideration of all of the evidence that each of these propositions was proven and that the defendant was not legally uh, insane at the time, then you should find him guilty. Um, 
That instruction simply applies to the count one mens rea murder only and does not. Well, at a, at a bare minimum, you would have to concede that the courts below uh, haven't uh, uh, found to the contrary of what I said to you. There's been no finding in the courts below that the jury uh, was uh, instructed, as you uh, argue, only from uh, instruction four rather than instruction eight. I'm sorry, I don't understand what your question is. Well, I had asked you whether the jury was given instruction eight, telling them they had to find intent regardless. And I don't believe that any court below has said that eight was inapplicable to um, the finding under the the uh, uh, form of verdict that was returned here. I don't think any of the lower courts have said that, have they? No, no court has said that eight was inapplicable, but the law in Indiana clearly is that the um, to sustain a verdict for mens rea murder, as was ca- charged here, you have to show an intent to kill. To sustain a, uh, a guilty verdict for felony murder, there is no necessity of showing an intent to kill. It Additionally, appeared that, I mean, you may be right under terms of state law. It just appeared that the judge instructed the jury that they had to do that. Well, the judge did give final instruction number eight, but if we look at the verdict forms, too, I, the verdict forms talk in terms of uh, as charged in count one of the information. Clearly, count one did not charge the felonies. Uh, and, can, you know, in the verdict forms, when the, when the court refers to as charged in count two of the information, count two did not charge an intent element as to the killing. Is it true that... Uh, Counsel for the state, as well as the defendant, thought that only one form of verdict could be returned? No, absolutely not. That was certainly uh, mentioned in their arguments to the jury, though, was The prosecutor's arguments uh, and his one-verdict comments uh, come at a point in the proceedings where the prosecutor gets to get up a second time and deliver his closing argument. He did not argue that the jury should return but one verdict in his initial closing argument. Did you try this case, uh, Ms. Foster? No, Justice, Mr. Justice Rehnquist, I did not. So you're, you're judging from the transcript, I tell you. You weren't there, yeah. Correct. Uh, getting back to your question, Justice O'Connor, the um, prosecu- trial prosecutor makes his one verdict comments only after defense counsel uh, interjects his post-mortem defense to count three, uh, that, that the jury should not find Shiro guilty of count three because the criminal deviant conduct occurred after death. Um, the comments made by the prosecutor would be interpreted by a reasonable jury as saying, you don't have to uh, find Shiro guilty on count three. The pr- trial prosecutor concedes that the criminal deviant conduct occurred after death and then says that Mr. Keating, defense counsel, makes an interesting argument. The prosecutor's comments would be understood by the jury as indicating that it was okay with the state if the jury did not return a verdict on count three, and that the state did not necessarily lose their case so long as the jury returned a verdict on counts one and two. You're giving a very complicated analysis, but isn't it true that the defense counsel, as well as the prosecutor, told the jury, and this is Appendix 
page 17 of Brief for Respondents, Mr. Keating said to the jury, you'll have to go back there and try to figure out which one of eight or ten verdicts. Which one? So the prosecuting attorney, the defense attorney, both told the jury, pick one. The defense counsel was, was arguing that one verdict was the only proper number of verdicts that should be returned in this case because he was arguing for not guilty by reason of insanity. Additionally, as this court said in Donnelly versus De Cristofero, when we're looking at closing arguments, closing arguments that are generally relatively spontaneous, uh, that we will not attribute the most damaging uh, interpretation to an ambiguous remark. Um, defense counsel was asking for one verdict, not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, additionally, as we demonstrated in, I believe it's footnote 18 of our reply brief, it's conceivable that, that part of what's happening with defense counsel's comments is uh, a difference in punctuation by the stenographer. Uh, defense counsel could have said, you have to go back there and try and figure out which one of eight or ten verdicts. I believe there are ten that you will return back into this court. Um, as, the, as this court stated in Donnelly, we just can't attribute the most damaging uh, interpretation to ambiguous remarks. And I think that what clearly what the prosecutor is saying is you don't have to return a guilty verdict on each count. It's as though the prosecutor conceded count three. We know that Shiro uh, was acquitted of mens rea murder for four reasons. First of all, this jury had an unimpeded opportunity to convict Shiro. This jury was given separate verdict forms, uh, separate guilty verdict forms on each of the separately charged counts of murder. The jury signed and returned only that count which applied, which found Shiro guilty of count two and did not sign uh, the mens rea murder form or the uh, felony murder during a criminal deviant conduct. Well, why does that mean that he was acquitted on those charges? Uh, granted, the jury returned no verdict on them. Because as this court's precedents in Price and Green establish, uh, a silent verdict is the constitutional equivalent of an acquittal if uh, either the jury had the opportunity to convict and did not, or because uh, the jury intended to acquit. And, and Foster, in cases of lesser-included offenses, both Price and Green involved lesser-included offenses, did they not? I think it's fair to say that it's questionable whether the um, offenses at issue in Green uh, concerned lesser-included offenses. In footnote 14, the court says that... Um, that an argument is made that these are not lesser and greater offenses, although admittedly the lower courts had found that they were. But this court stated that it doesn't matter uh, whether they're lesser or greater offenses because the fact of the matter is when we look at double jeopardy principles, uh, a defendant has a, an interest in, in having his case resolved by the first jury and panel to hear it. And if the jury is given an opportunity to convict, and does not, it does not matter whether they're lesser or greater offenses. That's what the court said in Green? The court said in footnote 14 specifically that the argument that the uh, offenses at issue were not lesser or greater did not assist the government's position at all, that in fact if they're different offenses that uh, Green's position would in fact be stronger. Is there a difference between subjecting a person to jeopardy and acquitting a person? You can't be put in jeopardy twice. The state can't have you run the gauntlet and then say, oh, wait a minute, we think we can make an even stronger case, so we're going to call this trial off and start over again. 
without submitting the case to the jury. That person would, would have been in jeopardy and could not be tried again, and yet there would have been no acquittal. That's exactly correct. So that, this, that putting a person in jeopardy is not the same. I mean, you can, you can put a person in jeopardy and there'd be no acquittal. Why isn't that what happened here? He, he was put in jeopardy, so he can't be tried again for that offense. But that doesn't mean that the jury acquitted him of it. Well, I think Green says that if the jury has the opportunity to convict and does not, um, that that is treated the same as an acquittal. It, it's treated it, the same in the sense that you can't try the person for that crime again. But it's not the equivalent of a, a, an acquittal, which is a determination of, of an issue. I'm, I think I, I would disagree with that. I think that it is treated the same as an acquittal. I think the court said that when a, when a, ver- when a jury is silent uh, after they have had either the opportunity to convict and have not or that they have intended to, to acquit, uh, that that is the constitutional equ- equivalent of an acquittal. Ms. Uh, Foster, could, could I ask this question? Suppose you have uh, a defendant who is tried and convicted and sentenced for rape. He is then subsequently prosecuted and convicted for murder uh, in connection with the same episode. Would, would, it, would in, in your view, a showing at the sentencing phase of that, of that murder proceeding that uh, uh, the murder occurred in the course of a rape, would, would, would that be invalid, to use the rape as an aggravating circumstance? Let me make sure that I understand your He's convicted of rape. He's later convicted of murder uh, in the course of the rape. Would, would showing that the uh, uh, rape was an aggravating circumstance of the murder uh, be precluded? Would he be placed in double jeopardy if the prosecution tries to come in and say, this murder should be punished by death because there is the aggravating circumstance of rape? He having been convicted of rape already in the first trial. It's your position, is it, is it not, that that's double jeopardy? If the murder charge that he is... If the state convicts him of rape, then comes in and convicts him of murder during the course of a rape, what we would call in Indiana felony murder, is that what you're saying? Right. Okay, yes, that would be double jeopardy. Because the rape is a um, lesser included of the... Um, Felony murder rape. I'm assuming by your hypothetical that we're talking about different proceedings suppose, suppose here. Suppose it isn't a felony murder. Suppose it's uh, intentional. Uh, suppose it's intentional murder. But uh, but uh, uh, what is shown at the sentencing phase is that rape was part of the uh, of, of the uh, uh, event. Well, if he's subsequently charged with intentional murder, then no, I don't think there would be a double jeopardy Why not? problem there because the elements are not the same. But he's been, he's been tried for the rape. Right, but the elements of, you're, you're saying tried for the rape in one proceeding, then separately tried for intentional murder, what we would call mens rea murder? That's right. No, there's but no... Rape as an aggravator. You, you would have no problem, although rape has already been, he, he's been exposed to a jeopardy for that, uh, that could still be brought in at the sentencing phase. Yes. With no double jeopardy problem. He's convicted of rape. That's very different than being acquitted. Not for double jeopardy purposes, is it? Yes, it is. Yes, Justice Scalia, it is. It's, it's okay to be convicted twice, but not to be 
acquitted and then convicted? In the hypothetical that you've given me, he is convicted of two different things. Rape and intentional murder are not the same offense. So yes, it would be okay for him to be convicted of both of those things. So well, then you're talking about collateral estoppel, not double jeopardy. That's your argument. I, th I think if you're going to say double jeopardy, you have to uh, answer Justice Scalia's question. He's being put to the pain, the agony, the ordeal of having to defend against the rape charge a second time. It's double jeopardy. You can't do it. But you don't take that position, apparently. Well, if the, if the elements of the intentional murder are different than the elements of the rape, then no. It's a question of a second trial for, this, uh, for the same facts. We're talking about the sentencing phase. Your, your case separates out the sentencing phase, and, and, and elements no longer make a difference when you're just talking about the sentencing phase. In the sentencing phase, they're trying to introduce the proof of a rape. It, the elements of that proof at the sentencing phase are the same as the elements of the rape that he's been convicted of. I don't, I don't see why you, you wouldn't, uh, if you believe in double jeopardy, you would have to say, no, that, that rape could not be introduced at the sentencing phase. I think that the, ele the elements do make a difference. For, for our argument, what has happened is that Cheryl was acquitted of the mens rea murder, and then the elements of that were used at the sentencing phase. And our argument is that that violates double jeopardy. Well, what if he'd been convicted, uh, the jury had come in with a verdict of guilty on count one, and then at the sentencing phase, uh, the state wanted to prove that it was done in the course of a rape as, a, as an aggravator. And there had been no who say double jeopardy here because they didn't return a verdict of guilty of felony murder. That your if he was convicted on count one and the jury was silent as to count two, mm -hmm. Yes, that would be, my argument is that that would be a double jeopardy violation. So the also. state's caught either way here. Under no, absolutely not. This jury had a, an opportunity to return a guilty verdict on each charge. This, the state charging three counts of murder in Indiana is very common, as demonstrated by our uh, footnote 12, I believe it is in our reply brief. When the jury is convinced that the state has proven the elements of each of those offenses beyond a reasonable doubt, juries in Indiana return guilty verdicts on each one of those offenses. Um, there's 37 cases in footnote 12 where, where defendants were charged, similarly to Mr. Shiram, with multiple counts of murder for the death of one person, and the jury returned verdicts on... on uh, Ms. Foster, did you counts. check in those cases whether there was the kind of instruction that was involved in instruction eight where the jury was told for murder seemed to think that in murder without de defining felony murder premeditated that all of them required an intent or where the prosecutor and defense counsel says pick one in those cases that you cite in that footnote did we have that kind of um, presentation to the jury where counsel says pick one and the judge gives the same charge for without differentiating? Or in those cases, did the judge discreetly say, this is what's required for felony murder, this is what's required for premeditated murder, and did the, did the uh, attorneys in their summation make clear that the jury could find more than one? Justice Ginsburg, the, um, the opinions in those cases obviously do not answer the question that you have just asked, but I have looked at 33 of the records in, in those 37 cases. Uh, in 11 of the cases, in 11 of the 33 cases, the uh, jury was instructed to return a verdict on each count. 
um, guilty or not guilty on each count. In 22 of those cases, uh, the... That, that instruction was not given here. That instruction was not given here. That is correct. In 22 of those cases, um, the jury was given no guidance on how many verdicts to return. And, and what we found in the records were instructions similar to Instruction 8, where the court said, here are the elements of the offense, and if you find those elements proven beyond a reasonable doubt, then you should uh, return a guilty verdict on that count. So I take it your answer is no, you don't, didn't have the kind of um, perhaps misleading under state law picture that was presented in this case, or at least you... I'm not sure what you mean by misleading picture. In 22 of the cases, the jury did not receive any guidance from the court on how many verdicts to return. Uh, they got instructions similar to Instruction 8 that said, here are the elements. If you find these elements beyond a reasonable doubt, return a guilty verdict. May I ask you, are you through? I don't want to interrupt you. May I, may I ask you a question about the instruction number, final instruction 21, which uh, ends saying the foreman will preside over your deliberations and must sign and date the verdict, parenthesis, S, close parenthesis, to which you all agree. So in a written statement that seems to contemplate plural verdicts. I'm curious to know if the transcript of the, in the, uh, of the proceedings themselves indicate what the judge said when he read that instruction. Um, the transcript of those, of the actual words that the judge spoke is, is, is not available. It's so we not don't know how he conveyed the, the parenthesis S, close parenthesis, to the jury. That's correct. Did the written instructions go to the jury? We don't know the answer to that either, although I know that, that the practice in Indiana is in general they do, but we do not know whether these guilt trial instructions, we know that the penalty trial instructions. Because if the written instructions went and the, the judge in effect said you can return more than one verdict, but if, but if you read verdict, that would be a different uh, reading. Um, I mean, at some, at some points I think in the instructions he refers to verdicts and offenses, and at other points he refers to offense. Um, I mean, I think that there's a real hodgepodge going on here of, of what he refers to. However, if I was defense counsel and the judge was referring to um, numerous verdicts in the plural, um, I think I would have an objection to that. And that said, but we're all hypothetical. You, you don't know. You don't know That's what he correct, Justice Ginsburg. Let me just ask you one thing that I find so troublesome about your double jeopardy as opposed to your issue preclusion argument. Am I right that if, if you are correct, then the federal sentencing guidelines have got to be unconstitutional when they allow a judge at the sentencing stage to take into account um, a crime of which the defendant was in fact acquitted, not where the jury, jury was si simply silent, but the jury acquits. And then at sentencing, the judge says, but I think that was shown by a preponderance of the evidence so I am going to um, put you into a higher penalty category because I find that you committed that crime. Is your double je doesn't your je double jeopardy argument say that that would be unconstitutional? No, Justice Ginsburg. Um, and I don't do any um, federal trial work, so so correct me if I'm wrong. But what I heard There's you say is acquitted the person of the conduct. But what I heard and you if the if the sentencing stage, if that acquittal carries over to a sentencing, and a sentencing is treated just like another trial, then why doesn't that follow? Am I not correct that at the um, sentencing stage, the, the, um, the factor only needs to be established by preponderance? Right. 
the court could have found, I mean, it's a relative burdens case that But if the claim is precluded, the claim is precluded. We're not talking about the, precluding the, the, on a particular issue. It's the second argument that you make. I'm talking about your larger double jeopardy argument. This is you can't, convicted, acquitted, you can't, you can't bring this matter up again. I, t- I still, my answer would nevertheless be that it's a relative burden, that the distinction is relative burden. Yeah. What is the answer that Indiana, in Indiana to prove the aggravating circumstance to make him death eligible? That must be proved beyond a reasonable doubt so that there's a difference that Justice Ginsburg's problem would not arise in this case. That's absolutely correct, Justice Stevens. By statute, they've got to prove the aggravator beyond a reasonable doubt. You have a different doubt. standard in the Fence Sensing Guidelines. You have the same standard in Indiana. Let me ask you a question about um, the collateral estoppel aspect of your argument. Would it make sense for us to adopt a, a kind of bright line rule to the effect that in a situation exemplified by this one, uh, we, will, we will not, for federal constitutional purposes, uh, infer uh, uh, any fact-finding and hence uh, raise any estoppel, unless the defense counsel has in fact asked for specific verdicts uh, on each of the specific counts, or at least on the specific count or indictment, uh, which is supposed to be the basis for the estoppel, so as to avoid uh, all of this tea-leaf reading after the fact. Why wouldn't it make sense to, to ask for a bright-line rule like that? It, the bright-line rule that you're suggesting is that defense counsel would be required on a collateral estoppel claim to request specific findings from the jury? Not findings, a, a specific verdict. Uh, in this case, the defense counsel should have said, Your Honor, uh, please give the, uh, the jury forms that will, uh, will give them an opportunity to, to make specific findings of not guilty in relation to each of the three specific homicide charges here. Because if the, if the jury had come back with a, with a specific finding of not guilty, returned a form uh, to, the, to the intentional killing, you'd have a very different argument. I don't Why wouldn't it make sense today. for us to, to require that, uh, simply to avoid uh, this, this attempt at, at reconstruction afterwards, which is never very satisfactory? Well, I guess my initial answer would be, you know, the state Supreme Court didn't find any sort of a procedural default, and that sounds to no, me like... No, but we've got, a, we've got a federal issue here. I mean, it's, it's up to us to decide what is a, a, a sufficient predicate for collateral estoppel under Ash and Swenson. Why, why, why isn't it appropriate for us to impose that requirement? Well, Shiloh's counsel would have had no notice of that requirement. To my knowledge, you've never imposed that requirement in the past. Um, and it, it would seem to me unfair to impose it at this point and, and oppose it, impose it upon him when he had no notice that that was a part and parcel of a collateral estoppel claim. If we, uh, if we in fact find that we cannot draw a sufficiently sound inference to raise an estoppel, would you, would you uh, concede that uh, the suggestion uh, uh, that the imposition of such a bright line rule uh, would in fact be appropriate? your client would not suffer, uh, and we, we wouldn't be in uh, quite such a confusing situation in the future. Well, I think in our case, there is a bright line that you can draw. Um, in our, assuming that there is an acquittal at the guilt trial, um, which we believe that you should find, with, res- with respect to why the jury acquitted, I think it's pretty clear in this case why the jury acquitted when you line up the elements of felony murder as against the... But that isn't the question. The question is, 
Would your client suffer in any respect if you, as or your, your the person who's defense counsel, says, Judge, I want you to tell the jury on each of these counts and give them a verdict form that says guilty, check either guilty or not guilty in each case. Or would you, wouldn't you prefer, as defense counsel, to leave the possibility of the jury not saying anything? Well, you wouldn't hear this question of guessing if, if the judge had said, and in each, for each one of these counts, check off either guilty or not guilty. I think, I think that that is the proper thing that the court should have done. Um, and as defense counsel, you would have asked for that? I'm not sure. Well, produce a lot of hung juries. You're saying every jury uh, has to be, if the defense counsel requests it, has to be uh, required to bring in a verdict of all of the counts. They can't say, hey, one is good enough, you know. Uh, he'll, he'll go up for 30 years on this one. And, and they don't have to consider the rest. They're going to have to consider each one and come in with a verdict of guilty or innocent on each one. Wow. The fact normally is, in, in most of the cases... <laughs> You're normally instructed to return a verdict on every count. You don't say, just do one count and go home for the evening. This the last trial out in Los Angeles, they spent about a week extra getting the extra counts decided. The state filed three charges, and I think the jury would feel duty-bound to return, you know, to give the state an answer on each of why, those three Why would it? If the jury was not instructed to do it, why shouldn't juries act the way most of us would act? And that is if they, in fact, found the, uh, the, the felony murder, uh, which, is, which does not involve any, uh, any subtle weighing of evidence about state of mind. Uh, and uh, they have no doubt about the, uh, the, the predicate for that conviction. Why, unless they are otherwise instructed, uh, is it reasonable to suppose that they went on uh, and, in fact, uh, took up the, the, the rather more difficult issue? Isn't, isn't the, the, uh, the inference just the opposite? Because, as demonstrated in footnote 12, juries in Indiana routinely do come back with uh, verdicts on each count because it makes sense that the jury would have, the jury was not told to just return one verdict by the court. It makes sense that the jury would have approached their um, obligations in, in the order in which the charges were submitted to them, one, two, three. We know that the jury was considering count three because they had a question during deliberations uh, that went only to count three. Um, Thank you, Ms. Foster. I think you did very well in the four minutes that the court allowed you. Thank you. Yeah. Mr. Abel. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The petitioner's claims in this case fail for each of the four following reasons. First, uh, whatever else is clear about the record in this case, it is clear that it does not show an actual determination on the issue of intent in petitioner's favor, which is a necessary requirement because this is really a collateral estoppel rather than a double jeopardy claim. It isn't, it isn't a requirement for double, for double jeopardy. It is a requirement for issue preclusion. Uh, it is most certainly a requirement for issue, issue preclusion. There are other issues that come up in the double jeopardy context. You're correct. Yeah, but you don't, don't have to have, if, if you've decided the case in d double jeopardy, you don't, you don't have to have the specific finding. In many double jeopardy cases, you would not, and uh, for... Uh, because the implied acquittal doctrine would not apply where you've got multiple charges of the same offense, we believe that if this were viewed as a double jeopardy case, he still would have to, at a minimum, show that the jury intended to acquit him. 
Uh, may I ask before you go on to your other three, if the first one, there had been an explicit finding by the jury of not guilty on the intentional murder count, would you still prevail? Um, under the double jeopardy clause, that's correct, and that is indeed the third point, which is that double jeopardy deals with successive prosecutions. It does not deal with the relationship between different stages of a single capital trial. There might be other things in the Constitution that would prevent that result, but certainly it would not be either double jeopardy or collateral estoppel growing out of the double jeopardy clause. And the fourth point... What was it, your second? You, you skipped to the I'm third. sorry. The second point was that the implied acquittal doctrine uh, simply does not apply where the multiple counts are alternative theories of proving what is the same offense as they were in this case. What do you say about footnote 14 that you rely so heavily on? Well, I, I think it's important to look at. The court said uh, what's not important is lesser or greater, but the court went on to say it is vital that it is a distinct and different offense. And you simply don't have that here because on, under state law, under the common law, and under the law of most American jurisdictions, felony and murder and murder are not separate offenses. They are part of a unified offense. And this court recognized that in the Shad case. Um, and the fourth point is that to apply double jeopardy or collateral estoppel in the manner that petitioners suggest would be to create a new rule and to apply it retroactively in a habeas corpus case, which this court has held time and again, is not appropriate. Before I amplify on those points, however, I do want to uh, uh, correct what I believe may have been a misimpression about Indiana practice with respect to jury instructions, because the practice has changed over time. At the time of this trial, it was inappropriate under Indiana law, uh, and there were several Indiana Supreme Court cases indicating that instructions were not to go to the jury room. Uh, over time, that practice evolved. Uh, the Indiana Supreme Court began saying, well, it's okay to send them to the jury room. At least it's not error. Uh, and the current state of the law is that it's the better practice to send them to the jury room. But when was this case tried, Mr. Abel? 1981. Were the verdict forms separate? They weren't all on one sheet as printed in the appendix. Here. Was, there, was there a separate sheet of paper for each possible verdict? Um, there were three sheets of paper. Um, as, as we've noted in our brief, and there were uh, three of the forms were on one sheet, three were on another, and four were on another sheet. Um, I'll check the record. And, but they were not all on one form, they, and, and they were not on separate sheets for each one. There were sh three sheets of paper that contained the total of the ten. Forms. How do you distinguish Price and Green on the implied acquittal theory? Well, because... Uh, as the court recognized in green, the, the vital thing is that you have a distinct and different offense involved, and felony murder and murder simply are not. In addition, on this record, uh, it is a requisite for uh, the application of Price and Green that the jury has a full opportunity to convict. And in this context, opportunity to convict has to mean that the jury had an opportunity to convict on all of the counts. Because, as I believe in one of the answers to, to one of the questions earlier, had they convicted on, the, uh, on count one but been silent on counts two and three, uh, then we would be here arguing over whether they had acquitted him of the felony. Um, 
And the only case that we've been able to locate that addresses this specific issue uh, is a case from the New York Court of Appeals, People v. Jackson, where the jury in that case was told uh, the charges were premeditated murder and felony murder. The jury was told um, you only are supposed to return one verdict. Um, and in analyzing that, and of course they, they followed that, they returned one verdict, they were silent on the other count. Uh, the conviction was reversed for other grounds, and the state went back and tried the case again on both counts. The New York Court of Appeals said that simply Green and Price aren't implicated under those circumstances. Well, that Green wasn't implicated. Price had not been decided yet. Uh, and this court implicitly approved that analysis, in fact, in Price, when it specifically cited People versus Jackson in the context of discussing opportunity to convict. In Price and Green, too, uh, Mr. Abel, the, it was two successive proceedings in each case, wasn't it? One case had gone to judgment, and then there was a second separate proceeding brought. That's correct, and that is another reason that the cases are, are distinguishable. I, I believe they're distinguishable for at least three different reasons. One, uh, simply the nature of the offenses. The court has said it's important you have a distinct and different offense. And if, if you look at... Uh, uh, some hypotheticals, you can see why it's that factor rather than greater and lesser offenses that is, that is important because if a defendant were, say, charged with robbery and rape, which neither of which are, are lesser or included, the jury returned a verdict on one of them, uh, assuming that the court discharged the jury without declaring a mistrial because they had hung rather than telling them to continue to deliberate, um, then there would be a problem with trying that second charge in a subsequent prosecution. But that simply is not this case. Uh, Mr. Abel, I'm not sure I understand you. Why do you say that these three offenses are not separate? It seems to me they're separate in point of time, among other things. One, the deviant one is different from the rape, isn't it? No. Each of the, each of the uh, uh, offenses, the offense alleged in each of the counts was murder under Indiana law, and the murder occurred only only once. She died at one time. Um, and as this court recognized in Shad versus Arizona, murder and felony murder simply, they were not separate offenses at common law. They are not separate offenses under the laws of most American jurisdictions, and indeed, uh, the Indiana Supreme Court's precedents make clear that they are not separate offenses. No, but, but you would agree, would you not, that the, the jury, consistently with Indiana law, could have returned a guilty verdict on one, two, or three of the counts. It would have been consistent with Indiana law to do that. Well, had, they, had the jury returned a verdict on more than one of the counts, the trial court would have been required to, to uh, uh, not enter conviction to enter conviction on only one, it's, it is inappropriate. No, I'm Indiana. just asking about the jury. Consistently with Indiana law, the jury could have returned all three verdicts, two verdicts, or one verdict. Well, I, I'm not sure what you mean by consistent with Indiana law in the sense that if they did so, the court was required to take corrective action. So in that sense, I'm it, not it sure would it have is had, consistent It had been Indiana able to law. choose uh, uh, among three different verdict, guilty verdicts. The court, yes, the court would have been able to do that. Yeah. I think one so what, of what guides the court. The jury comes in uh, guilty in counts one, two, and three. What, what, what does the court enter? Um, Whatever it wants. There are no specific standards for guidance. Probably the most uh, serious of the of 
of the verdict, which, which in, in this case would be count three, because I guess count three because that was the capital charge. Uh, two and three were two both three. capital charges. Um, and in fact, under the instructions in this case, uh, count two, I believe, would have been the most serious, the one, in fact, that the jury did return a verdict of conviction on. Um, it's important to look at the nature of the claim here, and I think when that is done, it becomes clear that it is not a pure double jeopardy claim, but rather it is a collateral estoppel claim in the mode of Ash versus Swenson and that line of cases, because this court's cases consistently teach that what double jeopardy precludes is a subsequent prosecution for an entire offense. It simply doesn't speak to preclusion of particular elements, uh, particular factual elements, if it did, there would have been no necessity for the court to decide Ash versus Swenson if double jeopardy, pure double jeopardy, dealt with issue preclusion. Uh, in this sense, a pure double jeopardy claim in criminal law is analogous to a claim preclusion claim in the civil law, just as in collateral estoppel in criminal law, of course, is analogous to uh, collateral estoppel in civil law. Uh, in one instance the whole claim is precluded, whether that is a civil or criminal claim, uh, cause of action as it were, and in the other instance particular elements are precluded. That is important for this case for a number of reasons, because if the record in this case shows anything, it shows that the petitioner has failed to establish a jury determination on the issue of intent in his favor. The court's cases are very clear that this burden rests on one claiming criminal collateral estoppel, uh, all the way from uh, Ash versus Swenson, uh, which adopted collateral estoppel, to Dowling versus United States, one of the court's more recent cases on the issue. The court has made plain that the defendant must show that there is no other possible explanation for the verdict. I believe uh, that is a, a paraphrase, if you will, of Dowling. Here, of course, uh, there are a number of possible other explanations, but in analyzing whether there was an actual determination in his favor, I think it's important to look at two things. First, what did the state courts find on the issue? And second, are those findings fairly supported by the record? Um, the Indiana Supreme Court's finding is clear that the jury simply chose not to consider count one. Um, that appears in the joint appendix at page 140. Uh, and that's a finding that's entitled to a presumption of correctness under 28 U.S.C. section 2254D, as long as it's fairly supported by the record. In this case, I don't think there's any question that the record fairly supports the Indiana Supreme Court's conclusion. A petitioner's argument is that the jury acquitted him on the issue of intent. They found intent was lacking. Well, what does the record show with respect to that? First, we have the facts of the crime. By his own admission, Petitioner repeatedly raped the victim and then killed her for the express purpose of preventing her from reporting the rape. This whole problem would have been obviated, would it not, is if, if the verdict form that, that was submitted to the jury had asked the jury yes, no on each of the counts, then we would know whether they, if they had an option to say yes or no. But they, they didn't get that, and, then, and the prosecutor told them, 
you're only allowed to return one verdict. The appropriate charge for you to return is on murder in the conduct of a rape. So he, the jury gave the prosecutor what the prosecutor asked for. That's ex exactly. And that is another reason um, that I think it's clear on this record that the jury didn't determine any issues in the defendant's favor. Um, but wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been for the purposes of, of clarity and to avoid an appeal, wouldn't it have been appropriate for the, for the prosecutor to say that to the judge, give the jury a form which will make it clear to them that they can, that they should, not that they must, but that they should find yes or no on each count? Uh, Certainly, it would have obviated a great deal of the confusion. It is in no sense constitutionally required. I think that's clear from well, the court. Well, if that had been done and the finding had come back not guilty on the first count, the intentional murder, then would there be a collateral estoppel problem at sentencing if you tried to prove intentional murder as an aggravator for sentencing? Not collateral estoppel under the double jeopardy clause, because as this court noted in Ohio versus Johnson, unless you have successive prosecutions, which is what the double jeopardy clause is really aimed at, um, neither pure double jeopardy nor collateral estoppel growing out of double jeopardy applies. And in that case, the court held that you simply cannot create a bar uh, between well, the separate. versus Swenson, though, has language that is troublesome, I suppose. Well, you need to bear in mind in Ash versus Swenson, the fact situation, um, the defendant there had been accused of robbing, I believe, four people. Uh, the state first had one prosecution uh, with respect to one of the victims, and then on a second indictment had a whole other prosecution on another of the victims. Um, and, and so Ash versus Swenson simply doesn't govern this case where you've got separate stages of a single trial, and indeed, nothing in the court's collateral estoppel jurisprudence under the Double Jeopardy Clause suggests that you can uh, create an estoppel in the middle of a proceeding in Ohio versus Johnson says that you cannot. Uh, then we'll have to make up something else, won't we? I mean, you, 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 uh, you acknowledged earlier that, that very subtly that there might be some other constitutional doctrine that prevents it, but it's not collateral estoppel or uh, double jeopardy. Surely we can't have proceedings in which... Uh, uh, a, a jury first finds that uh, that fact X doesn't exist, and then in the same proceeding, uh, in order to determine the penalty, it is found that fact X does exist. I mean, uh, you're not troubled with that? Uh, I mean, I, we don't call it collateral estoppel. Let's call it something else. But 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 surely things like that should not happen, should they? Um, assuming your proceedings are governed by the same burden of proof, I believe there certainly would be, might be something in the Constitution that would prevent that. I think the and most they are, of They are here. And, and this, in, in civil proceedings, if you have a equitable relief, damages and equitable relief, same proceeding, the, the jury finds damages. That finding binds the judge with respect to equitable relief. So I don't understand your argument that issue preclusion doesn't apply. I thought your whole point about issue preclusion was there was no finding. But now you've get, given the answer that double jeopardy is out of this picture altogether, issue preclusion is out of it altogether? If I may explain, I believe 
that a doctrine that the court could develop in an appropriate case, a case on direct review where it wouldn't be creating a new rule, would be in the nature of issue preclusion and that it should be grounded just as, as the cases, the mixed law and equity cases are grounded on the appropriate right to a jury trial provision uh, rather than uh, on the notion, on the double jeopardy clause, which is simply not aimed at anything but successive prosecutions. Um, so I'm not suggesting that there wouldn't be something that would require some form of issue preclusion. It's not the double but jeopardy some clause. Issue preclusion is raised, litigated, and decided. So what's the, I don't know, and I thought your whole point throughout is it wasn't decided. That, that is the point, Your Honor, but also to create. So are you saying even if it was decided, it, it would still uh, could be decided again by the judge in a way in conflict as, with the jury? As, as I understood the, the hypothetical, I do think there would, there would be problems with having that issue relitigated. I don't think that rule should be created in this case, and I don't think that rule should be grounded on the double jeopardy clause. Uh, it would be more appropriately grounded on the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial. Which was not raised in this case, right? Which was so, not raised. So your argument case. would be, even if it was decided, uh, and even if there was no Teague problem, that we still couldn't find in their favor in this case. Uh, that's correct, Your Honor. Um, I thought your argument was it was, it was academic in this case because there was no finding, and for issue preclusion that you must have a finding. That's correct, and that, that is our main argument in this case. Um, but it also, to apply um, a, the form of collateral estoppel that I believe would need to apply in the hypothetical would create new law uh, and would address issues not raised in the petition um, in this case. Uh, in terms of the implied acquittal rule of Price versus Georgia and Green versus United States. Uh, first, I, I think it's clear an implied acquittal is not enough for collateral estoppel. You need an actual finding. But even if the law were to the contrary, that rule simply doesn't apply, as this court recognized in Sechos versus Indiana, where your, your separate counts are multiple theories of the same offense. Uh, and that's precisely what felony murder and murder are. Uh, under Indiana law uh, and under the common law and uh, in a manner that's entirely constitutional as this court recognized in Shad versus Arizona. Uh, also, uh, in this case, there would not be an opportunity to convict under Price and Green uh, because the jury was told by both defense counsel uh, and by the prosecutor that its task was to pick from among the three verdicts. And I think the thrust of the prosecutor's remarks, and I think this is clear from the transcript, uh, which is included in the appendix to our brief so you can see the whole context, and why this point came, came up in rebuttal was the defendant had indeed presented this defense to, to one of the uh, felony murder counts, and, and the prosecutor said to the jury, it doesn't matter because you can only return one verdict anyway. He said... Give the defense counsel his argument. Be that as it may, you're only allowed to return one verdict. And under those circumstances, there's simply not the full opportunity to convict required for the implied acquittal doctrine uh, in Price and Green. Can you clarify for me what, what you mean by, you know, when, it, when they're just different theories of the same offense? What, what is the criterion for that? Whether, 
whether uh, uh, separate sentences could be could be imposed for each of the convictions. I assume you couldn't if 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 um, uh, one type of murder had a a 40-year sentence, another a, a 30-year, and, and another a a 20-year, whether you could convict of all three and string the sentences together, is that the criterion? Um, I believe the criterion is how state law defines the offense so long as it does so in a manner consistent with due process under SHAD. I think the states are free to to define um, certainly murder and felony murder as a single offense. Yeah, but, I mean, isn't the easy way to tell whether it's a single offense or multiple offenses whether you could get two punishments for this for the, um, for the thing? I assume here you could only be punished for murder. That's correct. One type or the other of murder, and you couldn't you couldn't get three separate punishments for three separate kinds of murder because there was only one murder. Is is that the point? Um, certainly, if that were the test to be applied. Um, uh, this case would meet it. I, I simply haven't thought through all the potential hypotheticals and statutes dealing with um, aggravated uh, robberies and so forth. So I'm, I'm not sure of the test. I think, uh, but I believe it should be the test that the court applied in Shad, uh, that the state can do it uh, constrained by the limits in Shad. Um, and... Uh, if there are no further questions. Let me just ask you one, one other question, if I may. Uh, at, the, at the heart of this case, of course, is how we interpret the jury's silence on that one instruction. Is it, what is your view on whether that's a question of state law or federal law? Um, I believe it, it's, it's not really a question of either law. I think it's a question of historical fact. Uh, it's, it's subject to the presumption of, of correctness under T, because the question is sort of what did the jury do here? Um, and as the Indiana Supreme Court found, they simply didn't reach that count. Well, well uh, supposing it were perfectly clear, say the, say the instructions were more the way your opponent would like them, where the judge said in so many words, return verdicts on all accounts that you can make up your mind on or something like that, and clearly said you have a duty to, to, to decide the whole case, and then they failed, they left a, a, a silent verdict as to one of the three counts. Would the determination whether that's equivalent to an acquittal or not, do you think, be a matter of federal law or state law? I still believe it it would be a factual question. Um, Depending on what else might be in the record, uh, that would determine the resolution of that factual question. But but I think it's fundamentally it's a question, what did the jury do? And there's always at least some possibility that the jury uh, would not have followed such an instruction, although ordinarily courts presume that they do. Uh, so that's probably the basis the state courts would start from in making that finding. Thank you, Mr. Abel. The case is submitted.